As you're taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 20. Well, as you're kind of getting yourself situated in Acts chapter 20, I want to begin by asking you a question, a question you've probably uh, been asked before and a question you've probably thought through before, but let me maybe pose it to you and give you a fresh opportunity to come up with an answer on the spot. If you were to have dinner with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would you choose? Go ahead and think about it. Now listen, Jesus is assumed, so like, and if, if you didn't come to the top of your mind, shame on you. Uh, other than Jesus, who would you choose? Okay, Paul, I got a couple of Pauls, good for you. Okay, why don't you just uh, um, take a moment, I'm sure you're curious as to who you're, you're thinking of. Maybe turn to the person beside you, just share, share who you'd want to have dinner with, if you could choose anybody. Go ahead, got a second there. All right, some, some funny answers, I'm sure. It's good you get in a window into each other's lives here. Fairly recently, a company by the name of Master Foods put out a production video, an advertising video. And in this video, they recruited a bunch of parents to come and sit down before camera and answer that exact question. If you were to have dinner with anyone in the world, living or dead, who would you choose? And so they put these parents on the spot with a camera in front of them and they asked them these questions and, and they began to answer and it was kind of funny. You know, they're, they're picking maybe somebody famous, a celebrity, somebody historic, the husband's trying to answer for the wife, this is who you choose. And they're like, oh no, I choose this person instead. And it was really funny, kind of the answers that they gave. But then, without the parents realizing, I think, what was going to happen, uh, the parents were brought into a kind of a closed room with a live feed to the same camera at the same table, and they brought their children in, and they asked these couples, these parents, they asked their children the very same question, and it was fascinating to watch the reactions of the parents, as in almost every single case, the people the children chose, especially the young ones, was their parents, their family. Feel the, the shame and conviction right now. Right? It's utterly fascinating. While the parents are choosing celebrities and, and you know, the, the historic people that they would want to have dinner with, their kids, all they could think about was their family and their parents. And, and the parents, as they heard the reactions, their hearts were so stirred in the moment. As you can imagine, they weren't expecting this at all. Some of them begin weeping, filled with joy in one sense, remembering the love of the family. And the slogan that's kind of tagged on to this promotional video was this, it's so interesting, make time for the people who matter most. It's amazing, I find as we get older, how quickly we can begin to lose perspective on exactly what matters most, on exactly who matters most. And it's interesting because I think the things that matter most to us, isn't it true that they ultimately end up being the things that we love most, the people we love most? I think as Christians, we need to constantly be reflecting on what matters most, what is of ultimate significance and importance, and we need to be reminded of that because we need to be reflecting often on what it is and who it is we love most. I think of that when I think of the life of the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who is so committed to ministry. Here's a man who's so committed to the gospel moving forward as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. And the question that we can come back to time and time again is how does he remain so committed? How is he so totally dependent upon God to do what he's doing? And in reality, when we look behind the curtains, when we get below the surface of the life of the Apostle Paul, here's one thing that we can know for sure. 
is that Paul loves Jesus Christ more than anything, and he loves the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, more than anything else on the face of the earth, and so he is driven by this, understanding that what he loves is right and true and best, and it then becomes what is of ultimate importance in his life. And as we look at Paul, his ministry is winding down can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and yet here he is with incredible determination to keep the ball moving forward, to keep the gospel advancing with power and might, to see so many people come flooding in to the kingdom of God and out of the kingdom of darkness. He's a man who is so filled with the spirit that he lives a life that is utterly devoted to God's glory and the good of God's people and the good of others. He's an example, listen, for us, church, people of God, loved ones, he's an example of the kind of spirit-empowered love that must characterize all of those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We see that in many ways below the surface of our text But I want to demonstrate, I want to show you that through God's word this morning, so let's look at it together and let's read Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sunk into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Paul demonstrates here, through his life and ministry, a consistent dependence upon the Spirit of God and a life that is Spirit-empowered. And specifically, again, let me just emphasize here that Paul always saw what was of primary importance because of what he loved and valued most. That was Jesus Christ and his church. It's a powerful example for us as we, I trust, long to have spirit-empowered love in our lives and to demonstrate that in how we live. We can ask the question, what does that look like? What does that look like in the life and ministry of Paul here from this text? I want to give you four things. First, spirit-empowered love longs to guide faithfully. Spirit-empowered love longs to guide faithfully. It loves to come alongside others and to steer them in the paths of righteousness and truth. It is so in love with God and the word of God and what righteousness and holiness is. Cares so deeply about others and knows that their good is found in following God faithfully. You'll notice that verse one 
brings us back to the previous scene. It says that after the uproar ceased, that was the uproar in Ephesus. Paul had been there, remember, this giant riot broke out over the ministry of Paul and the Christians there, and now it has kind of been dispersed, and Paul seems to be able to leave without any more challenges or difficulties in this city. He wants to go on and make his way to Jerusalem, and eventually he wants to make his way to Rome, and so he begins to plot out his journey, and this journey, in the first couple of verses, it's really significant that we understand that there is a lot of time passing between these two verses. In fact, many people believe there's up to a year and a half that's passing in these two verses, and during these two verses, there is so much ministry taking place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Some of the most profound letters in the New Testament are written during this time. Some of the most profound struggles that Paul has in his ministry happen right here in, verse one in verses one and two. I wanna kind of dig behind the scenes and get a sense of what this journey may have looked like and we can understand how Paul's love caused him to guide the believers faithfully wherever he went. There's a word there that you should notice in the first two verses. It jumps off the page because it's mentioned twice, once in each verse. Did you catch it there? It says that Paul sent for the disciples, the believers in the church there, and he encouraged them. And then it tells us in verse two that when he had gone through these regions, he retraced his kind of missionary journey back to all the churches, all the places he had been, the churches he had planted, when he had given them, notice this, much encouragement. This is the heart of the apostle Paul. He he looks at the church and he sees the people of God and his heart just wants to encourage them. Now, don't don't be mistaken about what this word means. The word encourage doesn't mean to just kind of uh, uh, pay people lip service. This isn't kind of a worldly encouragement where we kind of pump people's tire up and just kind of tell them what they want to hear, make them feel good about themselves, build up their self-esteem. That's not the kind of encouragement that the Apostle Paul is interested in. Interested in. in fact, you can look at this word encouragement and, and, and behind this word, here's what this word really means. You can look this up in, in lexicons or dictionaries. And the sense of the word is, is that it is a kind of exhortation. It's an entreaty that he's making, an urging. There is embedded in this word the concept of comforting and instruction coming alongside to edify and equip, to build them up, to strengthen them in the Lord. And one commentator said this, it's Paul's desire to spur them on to greater faithfulness and godliness. You see, Paul loved them so much. He wanted to see them, like John says, walking in the truth. And I think this is one of the greatest responsibilities that God has given to us. Listen, if you're a part of the body of Christ, not just leaders, but everybody in the body of Christ has this responsibility to be encouraging one another in this sense, to be exhorting and urging and appealing and building into each other. I love the parallel that Paul draws oftentimes in his ministry. We looked at this in 1 Thessalonians. He he talks about the fatherly role he had amongst the people of God. He talks about this position of being a father and them as his children. And it just, it reminds me, right, that as a father and as a parent in general, sometimes, sometimes the way we love our children is not by telling them what they want to hear, but by telling them what they need to hear. Our objective, contrary to many people's opinions in our current uh, society and culture is not to make sure our kids think we're cool. 
Our job as parents is to come alongside and to guide them in the truth. It is to protect them by helping them and training them in all kinds of righteousness and the ways that are good for them. And I think that parallels well with the life of the church. This is our objective when we engage with one another on spiritual things. It should be our desire to build one another up, to guide one another faithfully in the truth. In fact, the Bible constantly talks about this responsibility falling not just on leaders but on everybody in the body of Christ. Let me just give you a few examples. The author of Hebrews in chapter three verse 13 says this, be on the screen behind me, he says, but exhort one another. That's the same word, come alongside, encourage, urge, entreat, instruct, comfort, build up, edify, exhort one another every day. Apparently that's how often we need it. As long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is one of God's gracious gifts to the church that we can help protect one another and keep each other on the paths of righteousness. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, same word, we exhorted you. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. It's using it in a parallel way here and charged you. It's the same concept. He's just piling these words up to just help them understand how serious this is. Charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This was Paul's ministry. And then at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, he reminds the believers as he departs from them of their great responsibility. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the great responsibility of followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be doing that for one another out of deep love for God and love for one another. During this time, one of the things that's fascinating is that Paul was dealing with an incredibly difficult situation with the Corinthian church. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, you know that they were a messed up bunch of believers. It's hard even to say that when you read the letter sometimes. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening. There's factions forming in the life of the church. There were some people who were saying, well, we follow Paul. And others were saying, well, no, no, we follow Apollos. And still others were saying, well, we follow Peter. And the really righteous people were saying, well, we just follow Christ. There were lawsuits, believers having lawsuits against one another in public court and just bringing shame and reproach upon Christ. There was sexual immorality that was unbelievable. There was a a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law and Paul rebukes this man and he tells the church to put this man out of the church. There was favoritism and partiality being shown, the wealthy taking advantage of the poor and not allowing them to participate in the Lord's table, abuse of the Lord's table. There was chaos and confusion reigning in the local gatherings. It was a messed up situation and it was heavy on the heart of Paul as he begins this trip back. He's eventually gonna end up in Greece, verse two tells us that. And he's gonna end up in Greece in Corinth. He's gonna go see this church that he's been struggling to guide faithfully. Just read through the letter of 1 Corinthians and you get a sense of the problems that exist. But all of these problems, they troubled Paul. You need to hear this. They troubled him so deeply because he loved them so deeply. He cared immensely for them, for their spiritual health and growth. He had been there for a year and a half in this church, pouring himself with so much time and energy and effort into their growth, trying to guide them faithfully in the truth. He had written to them, many believe, a lost letter, a severe letter as it's often called, really trying to correct them and address and rebuke them. 
He was anxious to find out how they received this letter. I mean, he wanted them to respond rightly, but he was fearful that they were gonna reject it, that they were gonna turn their back on him, and they were gonna essentially walk away from the faith. You know, I'm reminded just in how Paul dealt with the church, uh, how we believers need to encourage one another sometimes. You know, oftentimes we love to tell each other the things that we know they, we wanna hear, and we shy away from sometimes telling each other the things that we need to hear. Sometimes as believers, we need to love each other enough to say the hard things to each other. And it's funny because I think we live in a, an evangelical culture sometimes that wants to tell us that to address sin in someone else is actually unloving and unchristlike. And yet when we look at the example of Paul and his ministry, when we look at the example of Jesus, we're never called to be ungracious and unkind in how we communicate, but we are never called to shy away from saying hard things. Addressing sin is not unloving. Sometimes it can be the most loving thing you can do to somebody. And I know it can be easy to excuse and to overlook. It's hard. None of us likes confrontation, and that's certainly not our goal in this, but loving and kind Communication dictates and godliness dictates that we need to sometimes graciously, but listen, firmly and strongly address one another. Paul had done just this, and at this time, during these verses, he had left Titus in Corinth. You know, Paul sends this letter, and he's like, okay, Titus, you stay there and deal with the mess now. But he's anxious. He, he wants to hear back from Titus. He, he wants to see how they've responded, and he's waiting for a report. So on this journey, he's looking to meet up with Titus at some point to get this report, to get this off of his heart. He wants to, he wants to know if they've responded. And he's supposed to meet Paul at Troas, but Titus wasn't able to, to get there. And so instead, he met his friend in Macedonia. In fact, let me just read to you what Paul says when he meets up with Titus. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and, and you can just listen on. In verse 5, it says this, for even when we came into Macedonia, this is right here, right where Paul is, our bodies, listen to the ministry, listen to the kind of love, the sacrificial labor of love that Paul was constantly, constantly giving to Jesus and to the church. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, it's the hard letter he wrote, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. You see, in Paul's heart and mind, to guide people faithfully would oftentimes come at a great cost. And he was afflicted. It was incredibly difficult to address the problems. To suffer what he suffered was unbelievable and unthinkable. It was unfair and oftentimes very unjust. And yet here's Paul willing to do the hard thing because he so deeply loved them. And I love, you can see this sort of joy that washes over him as he hears from Titus. Not only, hey, Titus was a brother, right? He's so comforted by Titus' coming, by their camaraderie, their fellowship, their friendship. But one of the things that blessed Paul beyond measure was the report that he brought back from the church in Corinth. They took the letter, they took the rebuke, they took the strong, hard words, and they received it. They were grieved over their sin, and it brought them to a place of repentance. You know, there's no greater joy, is there, than watching somebody turn away from sin. 
You know, I think about that in terms of salvation. There's no greater joy than watching somebody turn away from their life of sin, walk out of the darkness and into the light, amen? Like how awesome is it to see God save and rescue people from their sin? How awesome is it that God would do that for us? But as Christians, we need to be rejoicing that God would use us to help one another and steer each other off of paths of destruction and sin and to bring us back on the right path. Paul was so thrilled to see this. I think he serves as such a sweet example of what it looks like to guide others faithfully. So he continues on this journey. After he's given much encouragement, he comes to Greece, and verse 3 tells us that he spent three months there in Corinth. He was so relieved. He was so encouraged. He spent time with the church there. And then all of a sudden, we see a plot is formed against him. Talk about tough ministry. I want you to see, church, listen. That spirit-empowered love longs to guide others faithfully. We need to embrace this as a church family if we're going to continue to grow in godliness. But secondly, we need to see this, that spirit-empowered love longs to give generously. It longs to give generously. There is a kind of giving that flows from a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to tap into that heart of every believer that he comes across as he traces his steps back on this third missionary journey. As I mentioned in verse three, we're reminded that a a plot has somehow arisen against him. We don't really know all the details. We simply know that somebody wanted to take his life. They're not happy about his ministry. This is the plight of Paul all the time. So he changes his plans. He has to really quickly navigate his way through this and he sets sail for Syria, he was about to set sail for Syria, excuse me, and he decided to return through Macedonia where he had been so faithfully planting churches before. And then there's a list beginning in verse four all the way into uh, the end of verse, or excuse me, into verse five of some individuals. You'll look at the names there, Sopatar. Catch this though, um, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus. The Thessalonians, did you catch that? Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius and Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. There's quite a, a broad spectrum of individuals represented here, and you kind of need to ask the question why is he listing all of these people, but maybe more importantly, why is he attaching geographical significance to each of these individuals? Well, these were individuals who had chosen to come along on this missionary journey with Paul. They wanted to give of their time. They wanted to give of themselves to invest in the church. And it's a sweet picture of what it looks like to give of yourself generously to the people of God. But it's a little bit more than that. You see, throughout this time, the collection for the Judean Christians, the church in Jerusalem, occupied the forefront of Paul's mind. Paul knew that the believers and that the church in Jerusalem was suffering immensely for the cause of Christ. Remember, that was where Pentecost began. That was where the church was birthed. And what we are reminded of is that, listen, to be a Christian in the first century, particularly first century Israel, was an incredibly challenging reality. I mean, everything was stripped from many of these believers. Uh, Many of them lost their jobs for following Christ. Many of them were ostracized from their community. Many of their possessions and, and resources were stripped away from them, so they were left in deep, deep need. This is legitimate need, poverty, because of following Christ. 
And Paul knows this, and he has such a heart and a love for the believers that he wants to serve them. He wants to bless them. He wants to help them, but he doesn't want to do it alone. And so on this missionary journey, he goes back to all of the churches that he has so faithfully ministered to, and he reminds them, and, and he uses these other men as they go back to their own regions, the churches maybe that they came from, and he uses them as representatives to say, hey, hey, we need to help our brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. We need to give generously, we need to support them, we need to, to do what God wants us to do. And Paul, as he writes so often in the epistles during this missionary journey, he, he reminds us of this collection three times. I can give you three verses if you want. Galatians 2.10, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9. Romans 15, 25, and 32, all of these books written during this journey, listen, he talks about this offering for the Judean church. It's on the forefront of his mind. He cares so deeply. He's so driven by love. I hope you get that sense here. In fact, let me just, I feel it's necessary just to reflect for a moment on the kind of generosity that he is calling believers to. Listen to what he writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the church in Jerusalem. You can see the believers in Macedonia begging, could you please let us help? Let us do more. What a privilege it is for us to give of what God has first given to us and to help bless our brothers and sisters. He says, and this not as... We expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Can you look, the key to all generous giving is to first give yourself to the Lord. And Paul is saying, he's commending these believers, saying, no, they were so given to the Lord. They, they were so given to the Lord's will. They were so given to the Lord's work. They so loved God and his church. They had given themselves to God's purposes on this earth. And then we came along and we weren't sure what to expect, but they gave themselves to us. Everything we needed, they helped us, they served us, they blessed us. And then he goes on to say, listen to this, this is so, so powerful. And then by the will of God to us, accordingly we urge Titus that he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Oh, I, I love that. And you see how Paul does there? He, he's saying, look, I'm not trying to make you give and compel you to give. I want you to see what you've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to see how much grace God has lavished upon you, how he has poured it out like, beyond measure upon you. It is immeasurable, the grace that he's given to you. I mean, and how did he do it? Well, he gave up his riches. He gave up his wealth in heaven and he took on poverty, he took on the form of human sinful flesh, right, a fleshly body, and he gave himself so that we might become rich. 
You see, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, when you understand that you already have everything you need, you will no longer have a tight grip on the things of this world, amen? I mean, it's the gospel that releases the fingers one finger at a time as you think, God has so graciously saved me, he's given me everything I need, he's always gonna provide for me, he's always gonna care for me, he's always gonna sustain me, everything I need comes from him, and so I can give away whatever he's given me graciously and gladly. I love the picture there. You know, it's, it's, he goes on in chapter nine to talk about, listen, like, you wanna reap sparingly? then just sow sparingly. Like, you want God to bless you bountifully? Then, then sow bountifully, give away. He's talking about financial resources. He's talking about just blessing, give it away, give it away. And, and one of the greatest principles you can learn is the joy of giving, and the second greatest principle that you can learn as a believer in Jesus Christ is you can't outgive God, okay? You can't outgive God. So some of us are like, well, I can't give anymore. I mean, it hurts. I mean, really, where, where am I gonna get my next paycheck? Or how am I gonna get to do this? And what God says is this. Listen, if you sow bountifully, I am going to allow you to reap bountifully. You can't outgive me. Anything you think you can give, anything you think you're losing, I can give it to you tenfold. What a great reminder for us, isn't it? We don't need to cling to the things of this world. God owns it all. He owns a th- the cattle on a thousand hill. He can lavish upon us anything he desires at any time. And God loves to give to people who give away. Do you know that? He loves to give, why? You say, why would he give more? Because he knows we're gonna give more, right? We're just gonna keep that cycle going. God, just give me more so I can give it away to others. I love it, I see that so often in this church and it's so incredible to see how God just continues to allow people to reap more and more as they continue to give more and more. Paul is a sweet example as he calls the church to participate in giving generously for the support of others. He stays with the church there You'll notice that he begins then to leave. He sets sail away from Philippi and begins this next phase of his ministry. Look, a heart of love longs, longs to give generously to others. And I just, can I just tell you personally, I've seen um, this at work in the life of our church often. I could stand up here and I could begin to list off story after story after story of people in this church who have stepped up in times of people's need, who have given sacrificially, who have given above and beyond what I have ever thought or imagined or anticipated, who have stepped in and filled the gap in practical ways of caring for people, of serving them when they're hurting and destitute and through illness and death. And I just, I just wanna commend so many. I've seen this this past week and the past month in the life of my own family, my extended family. I've watched the body of Christ be the body of Christ and just so sacrificially give and love. So let me commend you. Let me commend you. You're a faithful, faithful church. You are doing so well in this and I am so blessed and encouraged as I watch you. So many of you are such a sweet example to me of what it means to give generously and I thank you for that and I thank the Lord for that. But let me call some of you too. Some of us need our hearts called to greater acts of sacrificial giving. Some of us aren't giving any of ourselves. Some of us aren't giving any of our time, our talents, or our treasures to the things of the Lord. Some of us are hoarding what God has so graciously and bountifully given to us, and what he's calling us to do this morning is to release that, to get involved, to give ourselves away for the building up and for the good of others, to stop being so selfish and self-centered, and to look to God and to look to others, trusting that God will bless you as you do that. Look, this is how love grows, and Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. We just need to believe these truths. These men gave them themselves. The church has stepped up and contributed to the needs of those who are deeply hurting. It's such a powerful, powerful picture of love. Spirit-empowered love gives generously. Thirdly, spirit-empowered love gathers regularly. 
The spirit-empowered believer longs to gather regularly with God's people. And what we see is fascinating. Verse six reminds us that he goes away from Philippi. By the way, um, you may have noticed that there's a switch in the, the personal pronoun there. The first six is the first time we see we again. Did you catch that? And it's mentioned uh, throughout the rest of this portion in, in chapter 20. And that's a reminder. Listen, the we there is Luke. Luke is the one who writes this letter. And it's, I mean, it's just so suited. He's back in Philippi. That's exactly where Luke left Uh, Paul left Luke in the first place, and now he finds him back in Philippi, and Luke joins this missionary journey once more, and he gives us a first-hand account of a fascinating event. Notice this, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered Now, we've read the story of Eutychus. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but just drop down to verse 11. It says, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I want to break this part up in the two, break this section up into two parts. The first one, I want to deal with this idea of of gathering regularly. You see, what we have here is, is a picture, a really helpful picture of early Christian worship. This is a picture of the early church. This is what they did, and it in many ways reflects Acts chapter two, verse 42. A lot of the same elements present here, it just reminds us that there was a, a pattern beginning to develop in Christian worship. This is, to be sure, a very special occasion, and it likely doesn't depict everything as it always occurred, or even everything that occurred on this night. Paul's point is not to be exhaustive in terms of their worship service. I mean, I'm sure there was hymns being sung and prayers being offered both both, um, publicly and corporately. But I do think this is a helpful reminder of what it means to be a follower of Christ and those who are spirit-driven. There is to be a deep longing in us to gather regularly with God's people around some very critical uh, aspects or elements And I want to look at some of those, and I want to do so in a way that I think maybe is helpful for us um, as we think about why we gather. Why do we do this every Sunday? What's the purpose of the church? What are we trying to accomplish? What's God wanting to do as we gather? What do I need to be thinking about as I enter into church? Here it is, okay? Here's the first thing. Here's why we gather regularly. I need to regularly recharge. I need to regularly recharge. You'll notice that the text tells us that they begin, they're, on, they're meeting on the first day of the week. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that, that this was the new pattern of the church. They met every week on the first day of the week. I mean, it was almost this non-negotiable aspect of the new Christian life. We gather together, we meet together, and this is just new life for us. You say, why? Why was it so necessary that they meet so regularly? And I think the principle is found in the Old Testament concept of the Sabbath. You see, believers here are no longer celebrating the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the Jewish principle of setting aside work. You know, you work six days a week, and then on the seventh day, which was Saturday, you have a day of rest. But it's helpful to understand, you know, in our, in our culture, we can kind of confuse what the Sabbath was and what the Sabbath was intended to be for the Jewish people. The Sabbath was not just a refraining from physical labor and work. 
The Sabbath was a regular refreshment for the people of God. Yes, from physical labor, but it was a regular filling up spiritually for the people of God. It was an opportunity for them to not have to worry about the world, not have to worry about the things uh, that they were doing from day to day, and, and to very specifically and intentionally, on a in a very focused way, get their eyes back on what truly matters most, what is of ultimate importance, God Almighty. It was, it was intentional kind of a recharge that God had built in for mankind. And now that Jesus had come, you'll notice that they meet on the first day of the week. The Sabbath is no longer, it's no longer a Saturday that they meet. You say, well, why did they meet on the first day of the week? The answer is really simple. This is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave the first day of the week. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ signified, listen, an end to the old covenant, the beginning of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Things were different. A new creation had begun. A new era had begun. And so Christians, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, began to worship on this new day, the Lord's Day. That's why we call it that. You know, church, I just want to encourage you how we see this so necessary in the lives of the early believers. I just, I just hope you see how necessary it is and what a gift of God it is that we get to gather regularly. That God would be thinking of us and desiring to recharge our spiritual batteries, so to speak. My fear as I look at so much of the church that so many believers are running on empty. There is no spiritual vibrancy. There is no spiritual life because they have failed to take advantage of what God has so graciously given, the opportunity to be recharged every single week. Secondly, I want you to notice this. I need to regularly receive. I need to regularly recharge, but I also need to be regularly receiving from God. You'll notice that there's a lot of emphasis given to Paul's preaching in this passage, isn't there? I mean, he talks for a long time. He goes on and on, and then he finishes. He raises a guy from the dead, and he keeps on talking till the morning. So what's the big deal? Why is that such a central reality in the life of the early church? Listen, the reality is that the word of God is always to be at the center of the gathering of God's people. This is so, so critical to understand. God has placed his word at the center because it is the means by which he is forming us and shaping us and changing us more and more into the image of his son. You notice when you look at this passage, they don't emphasize a lot of the other aspects going on. There are some things that we'll look at, but the word of God is prominent. It is always so prominent in the life of the church. Why don't they focus on singing? I'm sure they sung. Here's, here's why. Why isn't singing the, the pinnacle of the worship service? Here's why. Because worship is always to be a response to revelation. Okay? You just grab this principle. It's going to be so helpful for you in your own spiritual life. Worship is a response to revelation. Okay? So when we hear the word of God, here's what's happening. We, we are hearing from God himself, him revealing himself to us. Our, our minds and our hearts are being expanded with greater knowledge and understanding of the truth of all that God is. He is producing with us greater wonder, awe, amazement, so that our hearts and our lips can sing forth praises. You see, the intent, listen, the, the reading the word of God and hearing the word of God is a means to an end. It's not a means in and of itself. So when you get up in the morning, you're like, well, I read my Bible, check, I'm done for the day. You fail to see that that is only a means to an end. God wants to make you, through the reading of his word and the hearing of his word, a greater worshiper of the almighty God, the king of the universe. 
That's the end. It's never more knowledge, it's never to win an argument, that's not the primary purpose of being in God's word. So you need to get into God's word every day and say, God, God, I'm gonna read this and I don't want it to be cold or stale no matter where I'm at in my life, no matter what's going on circumstantially, no matter how I feel, God, I need you. I need you to open my eyes that I may behold the wonders of my God. I wanna worship you, Lord, help me. God, help me to expand my heart for you. There is no substitute for the word of God, okay? Worship music is not gonna do it. Casual conversations are not gonna do it. You need, you need to embrace this. You need regular intake of the word of God. You need to hear regular preaching of the word of God. A church without the word of God is like a child without food. Malnourished, weak, and helpless. And a church is only as strong as its commitment to teach, believe, and apply the word of God. You need all three of those things, teaching, believing and applying the word of God. And you need to believe this, that when you do this, listen, God blesses his word. This is a promise. God blesses his word. He'll bless you as you dig into it. Thirdly, note this, I need to regularly remember. Did you catch in the first verse there, it says, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now this term could mean just sitting down together with believers for a meal, but it's often used to talk about the Lord's table, what we celebrate here today, and and that's what I believe is very clearly being indicated here. This is talking about celebrating the Lord's table. This is a a practice, an ordinance that God gave to the local church. And the intention was to commemorate the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember and reflect upon his death and his resurrection. It was really a gift to the church to say, hey, hey, don't, don't lose focus. Remember why you're here. Remember who's at the center of all of this. That's what the Lord's table does. It, it stirs our hearts. It reminds us of the cross. It reminds us of the grace that has been lavished upon us. It gives us an opportunity to get low and humble before the Lord, to confess our sins, to turn from it in repentance, and to be celebrating the reality that one day we will see our Savior again. And so here they're commemorating the death of Jesus Christ. It's a helpful reminder, listen, so many churches, they begin to go astray because the gospel is lost. It's diminished in the life of the church, and that's so, so incredibly disheartening and sad to see because a church without the gospel is like a person without a pulse, dead. The gospel is always at the heart of all true churches of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, note this, that I need to regularly relate. You'll notice again, verse 11 tells us that there is a relational aspect to what's happening in this gathering time. It's so important. So many of us struggle with relationships, but we need to see the value that God places on them in the life of the the church. Verse 11 says that Paul had gone up and he had broken bread and eaten. By the way, um, that's a second time the word broken bread is used. And there, I I believe it's it's likely that they're not celebrating the Lord's table again. The implication there is it's kind of like a midnight snack. You know, they're kind of getting refueled. They've been fueled physically through the feeding of God's word, but now they need some physical sustenance because Paul's gonna keep them going, right? He's like, I'm not, guys, I'm not going anywhere yet, so get some food, and then we're gonna get back at the word. I like to do that some Sundays. <laughs> I got one amen, that's awesome. <laughs> and so here what we see is that there is a need to regularly relate, and Paul says that they had broken bread and they'd eaten. The implication is they kind of had this meal together, And it says that he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. 
Again, this is after midnight, and then he's talking with them until daybreak. The word converse there, it's, it's not speaking of the public preaching. It's not a formal a time of instruction. This is talking about a discussion-based context, relational-based growth, sharpening that's taking place. One believer to another, you know, a group setting. We're hashing some things out. We're applying the word of God to different circumstances and situations. We're seeking wisdom and principles that we can apply to our daily lives. You see, this was a powerful picture of the value of relationships in the body of Christ. This is a picture of Christian fellowship. And it's so essential to our own spiritual growth. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus, listen, we need to long for this. We need to long for fellowship and relationship because this really, really resembles the gospel. Relationship is at the heart of our faith. Relationship is at the heart of the Trinity. Relationship needs to be at the heart of the church. And so they start fellowshipping. You say, well, what does this look like in our church? Well, it happens in all different kinds of ways, but just so you know, this is like the primary emphasis of our small group ministry. It's, it's, it's fellowship. We're getting together around the word. We're talking about life. We're, we're helping each other think through the, the issues of, of life and the word of God and how it applies. We're developing meaningful relationships where we love one another and pray for one another and serve one another. This is what a healthy church does and Love compels us to regularly gather. And that cultivates our love for God and for one another. You need to determine in your heart that church is not optional. You need to understand the importance and the priority that God places on. You need to determine in your heart that church will not be an add-on in your life, that it's not unnecessary or unimportant to your spiritual health and development. Instead, you need to see the exact opposite, that it is critical, it needs to be primary, it ought to be the priority of your life. And when you drift away from church, by the way, it's really simply an indicator that you have drifted away from God. God loves his church. When church is unimportant, God is unimportant. And by the way, just so you don't pendulum swing here, while going to church doesn't guarantee a close relationship with God and others, it certainly is an indispensable part of a healthy, vibrant, useful, satisfied Christian life. Spirit-empowered love longs to gather regularly. And fourthly here, spirit-empowered love longs to grow spiritually. It longs to grow spiritually. It's interesting, in the middle of this worship service, Luke records this unbelievable miracle. I mean, it's really unbelievable. A, a boy is raised to life. I would classify that as pretty outstanding, pretty amazing, almost unparalleled. Here, it's funny because Luke sees fit to record it and the Holy Spirit sees fit to make sure we know about it. What seems like an untimely death is actually, in the sovereignty of God, perfectly timed. Like, like this happened at this moment for a reason, and the picture is so well painted. We can almost feel ourselves in the room, can't we? The details that are given are intended to kind of bring you into the story. Notice verse eight there. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. These oil lamps that were used to light the room, you can picture the, the flickering of the lamps as outside it is growing dark. You can smell the fumes of the oil burning that maybe was making the air a little bit stale. And a young man named Eutychus, young man, the word used there implies that he is likely between the ages of 10 and 14. Some of us can't fault him for what happened, I guess, huh? A young man named Eutychus 
sitting at the window. Here he is, he's thinking, man, this is getting a little bit stifling and I'm having a hard time kind of staying focused. I'll sit by the window, I'll catch a little bit of the cold breeze coming in and it'll help maybe revive me and pretty soon he drifts off into la la land, right? And he topples out the window, falls three stories, dead. I'm just telling you, if that happened in a worship service, that would shut things down pretty quickly. And Paul's just like, oh, hold on a second. You know, he, he goes running down. And by the way, Luke, Luke is a physician. Uh, Luke tells us he is taken up dead. Paul runs over. Uh, he bends down, taking him in his arms. He said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. In other words, Paul's not saying he's still alive. And some people think, well, Paul's saying he's not really dead and he, he's just fine and he's going to resuscitate him. You know, no, Luke's the physician. He's dead. Paul is saying, hey, don't worry. This is not a problem. <laughs> He's not going to be dead for long. <laughs> when Paul had gone up, apparently it was like this little scene. Paul picks him up. He's brought back to life. They go upstairs. They have a quick bite to eat. He begins to talk with them <laughs> until daybreak, and then he departs, and they took the, way, the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Yeah, I bet. That's an understatement. But you need to see what's happening. Yeah, he asks, like, why is this here? Well, first, to tell us that long sermons are good. <laughs> it's very biblical, or, or bad, depending on how you view this, right? <laughs> I like to think that what, that what Luke is really trying to communicate here is that if you fall asleep in church, watch out, something bad might happen, <laughs> okay? I'm kidding, kind of. It is interesting, a, a friend, another senior pastor, Brian Payne, um, from Harvest Austin, he's preached here before. Um, if you ever go to his church in Austin, Texas, um, they have what they call the Uticus Room. Guess what they serve in there? Coffee. Uh, that's good. We're going to change the name of ours as well. I think that's a helpful, practical t- tip here. Look, I-, I think you say, why is this here? I think there's some important things for us to learn. The first is this: I think it's here simply to strengthen the faith of the believers. You know, Paul's whole approach, right? The reason he's preaching so long, you ever think about that? Why is he preaching so long? Like, why doesn't he, why doesn't he take a more, why doesn't he come back tomorrow? He knows his time is limited with these people and he wants to pour into them, every, he wants to wring every last drop of truth into them he possibly can. He wants to leave just knowing that they have been well served by knowing and understanding the word of God and he just pours it into them because he cares so much about their spiritual growth. He just wants them to grow. He wants them to be okay. He wants them to be strengthened and matured in the faith of Jesus Christ. And here, can you imagine this happening? The words that are used, that they're not a little comforted, that that's the same concept of the fact that they were encouraged. You know, he could have chosen and they were amazed and they were in awe and they were completely caught off guard and surprised. He says they weren't not a little comforted In other words, their hearts were filled with courage and boldness. They were strengthened to keep pressing on. You see the the point there, right? Here's an example for you of the power of our God. I'm leaving you, and though you may have an opportunity to be discouraged and wearied and wondering what's gonna happen and how are we gonna grow, just know this. You're not alone. Your God is greater than me. Look how strong your God is. What you believe is truth. The power of the Spirit of God is raising a life in front of your very eyes to remind you that you have put your faith in the right thing. 
That's powerful. How much does that strengthen our faith to know, listen, to know, church, that what we believe is the truth. Our God is the God who raises the dead. Our God is the God who has conquered the grave. What a powerful, powerful demonstration right here. He wants to instill courage into his people. One commentator said that at every stop on this last leg of the third journey, people were built up and encouraged in their faith. I couldn't agree more. I think, again, just being reminded that this is a farewell scene helps us gather and and understand the importance of what's taking place. Paul's never gonna see them again. He's ringing himself out into them and the resurrection is a powerful reminder. Listen, I think there's a a comfort to their soul in this. The resurrection reminds them and it reminds us, listen, that death is not the end. Just think about this. Here's Paul going away. They love Paul. Paul loves them. What heartbreak, what hope is there? Right, wait, wait, here's somebody leaving to move to another country. You're like, I'm not sure I'm ever gonna see you again. You wanna know the one hope we have is if we're in Christ, I will see you again. There's a day coming where our God is gonna raise to life everyone from the dead and we are going to have the greatest reunion ever known to mankind, Jesus Christ at the center, by the way. I mean, what encouragement to their souls. How much would that build their faith knowing, listen, that Paul is gonna suffer. Paul is eventually gonna lose his life. What hope do they have to keep going on? Our God is gonna bring us back together as one big family and we long for that day. Isn't that the hope for all of us who've lost people in the Lord? I think there's maybe a third aspect to this that at least maybe we can be reminded of, if I can say it that way. I think this can serve as maybe an illustration or a powerful reminder even to our own hearts that there are so many people who need to be awoken. That there are so many people who are sleeping. Let me, let me just say this on two fronts. There are so many people who are asleep, dead in their trespasses and sins. Unbelievers who don't know the Lord, right? And, and the picture, we see the, the same imagery used, right? People being brought from death to life. It's almost like, like there's a sense, like don't forget why we're doing this. Don't forget what's at stake. The souls of people for all eternity will be affected by the ministry that you carry on, by the way you serve, by the way you love. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe we can just see this as a helpful maybe question for our souls is, how awake are we? How awake am I, spiritually speaking? Am, am I slumbering and sleeping spiritually? Am I a useless Christian? Am I just kind of snoozing away this life and wasting it away in dreamland when I could be awake? and vibrant, and healthy, and filled with zeal for the things of the Lord. You know, Paul says in Romans 13, 11, listen to this, he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of life. Don't you understand? The day of Jesus' return is hastening. He is coming back soon. Wake up. Stop sleeping. There's work to be done. Get rid of the sin in your life. Stop fooling around and trifling with sin and start getting after the things of the Lord. Start giving your life to the things of the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Lord, help us, amen? Help us, help us to wake up. 
Our sin just keeps us from pursuing the things of the Lord and we need to be freed and throw off the shackles of our sin so that we can run this race set before us. Paul says in Ephesians 5.14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Man, listen, Christ will shine on those who are awake in him and he will shine through those who are awake in him. Maybe it's time for some of us to come back to our first love. Maybe some of us need a fresh, listen, working and revival of the Spirit of God in our own lives. Maybe God is bringing to light and convicting you of some sin right now that you need to give over to Him. Paul leaves them by the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit-empowered love. He leaves them a little, not a little comforted strengthened and filled with courage, work to be done, keep pressing on. Church, maybe it's time that we wake up to what's most important and pray that God helps us to love what matters most, to love Jesus Christ and to love his church with all of our hearts and to love lost sinners so that they too can know the joy of salvation.